0: Hello and welcome to the First Prez Mommy Podcast, the show for people on the go who like to stay in tune with the conversations at our church. Today, Pastor Clint Tolbert speaks about 1 Kings 12, 1-17 and 25-29 and Reformation Sunday. There are many ways to use the power we have to serve ourselves, but Jesus is the only way that leads to life. Let's hear today's message. But whenever a worship service opens with the hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, you can have confidence that we are probably celebrating Reformation Sunday. Did you get that? Today's Reformation Sunday in the, uh, around the world, at least the Protestant church is recognizing and commemorating uh, this day. And so it's, I think, right to acknowledge it ourselves. Now, I did ask my 14-year-old just yesterday, hey, do you know what the Reformation is? And he went, huh, <laughs> right? Wow, okay, so maybe I have some work to do as a, as, a, as a father. But in case there's anyone else, the Reformation is that time in history when about 500 years ago, uh, Martin Luther, 1517, nailed the 95 Theses to the Wittenberg door, and began, began this moment uh, of, of history which produced the Protestant Church. Now, a lot of people are celebrating the Reformation. I, I, I don't know. I have mixed feelings. <laughs> um, I, am, I celebrate that in the Reformation uh, is recovered some of the most important principal doctrines of our faith, namely that, that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, as we know it through God's word alone, the the three solas, sola in Latin is alone. So I I do celebrate that, but I hope we can also recognize that that this day marks a division in Jesus' church, and for the one who in his last prayer, the high priestly prayer, prayed for the unity of the church, that's probably not something we want to celebrate. The the Reformation took place not just for the recovery of doctrine, but also as a a response to the abuse of power. Maybe if you know your church history, you know that the church, specifically the Catholic church at that time, was uh, run by uh, men who were largely doing very, very evil things. Many of them were taking the power entrusted to them as a pope or a cardinal making themselves wealthy, abusing the poor, doing all of those things. As to give you one sense of that time, uh, Pope Leo X was the pope uh, when Martin Luther nailed the theses to the door and, and he said this about the power entrusted to him. Since God has been pleased to give us the papacy, let us enjoy it. Like, this was the mindset of some in that day. And it, and it provides for us a pretty helpful entry point into the scripture that we read this morning, because there also we have this uh, lifting up of personal power, and the question of what does it, where does power come from, and how does God use the power that he has, especially in the person of Jesus, and, and how... Do we, those who claim to follow Jesus, use the power that we have? I mean, all of us have some measure of power. Do we recognize that? I mean, some have great power, some have less. But if power is, by definition, the ability to influence another person, then if if you have any spare time, then you have power. You 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 can use that time to influence people. If you have any disposable income, any at all, then you have a measure of power because you can use that to influence people. If you have anybody in your life that looks at you with some measure of admiration, then you have power because you can influence them. And the question is, uh, how are we supposed to use this power that has been entrusted to us? And before we ask that question, We ought to ask the question, okay, so how does Jesus use the power that he has? For he is the very definition of power. The scripture this morning helps us see that, though I acknowledge we've got some road to travel before we get there. And so, if you haven't already done so, could I invite you to open up to 1 Kings chapter 12 to this story that lifts up two men who have great power. For it's through them we can see Jesus and reflect on ourselves. 1 Kings chapter 12. Now before I read, let me acknowledge that that, uh, these guys have funny sounding names, right? And Pastor Jason pronounced them one way, I'm going to pronounce them another. I have no idea who's right and it really doesn't even matter. This is just hard. And so if you have ever asked to read scripture up here, you've heard me give you advice, just say it with confidence, because no one really knows, right? I pronounce these guys Rehoboam and Jeroboam, and and it's through them we can see King Jesus and think about the power that he wields on our behalf. So hope you're there. Uh, Let me pause and pray, and then we'll look at this together. Lord Jesus, we do on this day, mark this critically important moment in your church 500 years ago when your word was recovered and salvation by grace through faith alone was recovered and we give thanks we also recognize this as a day where your church was divided and for that we grieve and we ask that as we gaze upon you through your word that you would help us to see you king jesus who is lord of the whole church And that you would draw us to uh, worship you and follow you and work in such a way that your church offers one united witness in the world and does truly honor you, whatever label we might wear. It is in the name of Jesus that I pray. Amen. Well, I I acknowledge this is a hard passage. Did you think about that when Pastor Jason was reading? Were you going, huh, what? What's going on? Right? This is a hard passage passage. And we've got to kind of explain it a little bit. My undergraduate degree is a social studies education major. And so when I was taught to teach history, I was taught um, that if you teach history in a boring way, that's like a sin. And so I'm hopeful to kind of rephrase this in such a way where you're engaged, but, but acknowledge to you, you have a part to play in that. Because even as I'm Kind of connecting dots. You got to work to stay engaged here. Two guys, Rehoboam and Jeroboam. Let's first consider Rehoboam. Rehoboam is the grandson of King David, he's the son of Solomon. Now, as we are tracing the story of God's word, we've skipped over centuries here, right? Last week we talked about King David, but we really didn't even talk about him because we had a guest preacher. So we, you know, we've gone from uh, the days of Judges and Ruth, hundreds of years now, to Rehoboam, And we didn't even touch Solomon. And if we're going to make sense of this passage, we've got to know a little bit about Solomon and his rule and his reign. By many measures, Solomon was the most successful, certainly the most Wealthy, the most powerful king in all of Israel. If you read in First Kings, you, you'll see he even had the audience of the, the queen of Sheba. If you look at First Kings 10, so you've got the Bible open, you can flip back there. You'll just let your eyes gaze on that chapter and see how wealthy and how powerful Solomon was. Like 1 Kings ten fourteen, lets us know that every year... Solomon received, in the form of taxes, 666 talents of gold. Now, that is a creepy number as we approach Halloween, right? I never noticed that before. You make of that what you wish. But 666 talents, or if you're going to kind of understand, well, what is that in terms we understand? 25 tons of gold every year from the people you know working class people people who are trying to feed their families people who are trying to 25 tons of gold was given to king solomon and if you read a little further in chapter 10 like verses 18 through 20 specifically you'll give be given an example of the way he used that gold there you see a description of the throne he had commissioned and it is totally covered in gold. And there are lion's heads. All I mean, it's the most in ornate thing you could ever imagine. He used this wealth to largely serve himself. And in so doing, he fulfilled the warning or the prophecy that God had given to the people through Samuel. Again, we're tracing the story of God's word. And so let's rewind a little bit. To the days of Samuel, the prophet, or last judge. You may remember in that day, the people looked around and they said, Everybody else has a king. Samuel, we want a king. Well, let's read that passage together. I'm going to put it here in front of you so you don't have to flip back. It's 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 4 through 9. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, you are old. How'd you like it if someone says that to you, right? (laughs) Thanks, gang. You're old, and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. But uh, But when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord. And the Lord told him, listen to all the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected Samuel, right? He's feeling like they've rejected his leadership. He's saying, it's not you. But they have rejected me, God said, as their king. He continues on. As they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day. Forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. So remember, kind of the subseries we're in is a series of uh, forgetting, remembering, forgetting, turning, and remembering, right? The people just keep forgetting that God is king. And so it is here too. Well, what is the claim that the king will place on them? It's heavy taxes. It's drafting their, their sons into his army. And this is fulfilled most fully in the person of Solomon. Solomon's hand weighed, laid heavy on the people. And so when Solomon dies and Rehoboam ascends to the throne, there is a moment of hope. As is true, I think, anytime there is a moment of transition in leadership. Right? Whether, whether we should be or not. Think about it. Anytime there's a new president, whenever you call a new pastor, whenever there's a, school, a, a change in leadership at a, at a university or whatever, there's a, there's a momentary, huh, maybe things will be different. All right, so we'll put a pin there. That's Rehoboam. Let's go look at Jeroboam. He's a little easier to grasp. We're told right in 1 Kings eleven twenty eight. 28. So again, if you've got your Bibles open, you just go to the chapter prior to the one we're in look at that, it says now Jeroboam was a man of standing and when Solomon saw how well the young man did his work, he put him in charge of the whole labor force of the tribes of Joseph so who is Jeroboam? he's the head of the UAW, basically right? he's the head of the labor union and so if we ever think this doesn't, like this isn't relevant to modern life, think again. You got Rehoboam, you got Jeroboam, CEO, head of the labor union. It's, there, there's the, the, the conflict. Now, it was prophesied that under Jeroboam, 10 of the 12 tribes of Israel would rebel against King Solomon and his lineage. Because of Solomon's disobedience. And so a prophet comes and says to Jeroboam... Here's what God's about to do. He's going to give you ten tribes. Well, Solomon finds out about that as well. And so he tries to kill Jeroboam. And Jeroboam flees to Egypt. Which brings us to chapter 12. Rehoboam ascending to the throne. Jeroboam having fled to Egypt. Now, before uh, we enter into the text uh, even more fully, let me just pause here and note, because this is really important for upcoming weeks. From this point forward, Israel will be the ten tribes who follow Jeroboam, Judah will be that one tribe who remains with Rehoboam, Solomon, David, that lineage right and so as we're following the story through the scripture you're going to read about uh, you know a king of israel a king of judah a prophet of israel a prophet of judah it's really hard to kind of keep it all straight but this is the moment it happens and so you're going to want to mark it and try to understand some of you might be going "Ah, wait 10 plus 1 that's 11 weren't there 12 tribes yeah the last tribe is the tribe of levi the priests who had no land And no allegiance in that way, and so presumably there were Levites in both nations. All right. Let's look more closely at chapter twelve, which is put before us. Consider the, the emotion and the climax of this scene. Solomon, the most powerful, influential wealthy king in the history of Israel. So whether you like him or hate him, big footprint in the people's lives, he dies. And they are anticipating the coronation of his son. I mean, it probably doesn't take much imagination to, to consider this moment, right? Because we just saw something not unlike this. When Queen Elizabeth died, right? She had the longest tenure in in uh english royalty i think one of the longest and so you saw the world responding to her death probably similar to what's going on here and then you saw their gaze turn to charles who would be coronated king right Move from prince to king so too with rehoboam here Now, I want you to notice something. It's just fascinating. I didn't notice this until near the end of my preparation. So they're getting ready for this coronation. And all of Israel goes to Shechem. To which you ought to go, wait, huh? In fact, do that with me. Would you please say, huh? Huh? I mean, where would you expect... The royal coronation of Israel to take place. Jerusalem, the royal city. And yet they go to Shechem. Huh? I looked at this and I I tried to understand it. And I, I think I got it, though not fully. I mean, think about Shechem. What is Shechem? If you were to trace through the scripture like I did, here's what you'd find out about Shechem. Shechem's not the royal city, but Shechem's an important place. Shechem is the place where God has lived out his covenant with the people in a very special way. It was at Shechem where Abram, remember Abram, he becomes Abraham. Abram, the foundation of this covenantal relationship with, that God has with people. It's at Shechem when Abram's on his way to this land that God will show him. The Spirit of God says, stop. Abram, right where you're standing, this is the land I'm going to give you. This is the place of my promise. That was Shechem. Remember Joseph? Joseph, one of Jacob's sons. Joseph who, who saved all of Israel as he served Pharaoh. And then all the people went into Egypt. And then they were enslaved. And, and then God rescued through Moses. Remember that story? Head nods please, right? At least you've seen Charlton Heston. You know all of that. Remember Joseph said, Hey, I'm not going to see... The deliverance God brings to our people. I'm going to die here, but make me a promise. When God rescues you and you leave Egypt, take my bones with you and bury them in the Promised Land. Guess where they buried them? Come on, you, you Shechem, right? Shechem. They bar, They buried them in Shechem. Shechem also is when Joshua set up the Promised Land. And a few cities were designated as cities of mercy, cities of refuge. If you were committed of a crime like murder, and you were fleeing for your life until that moment where you could come into trial, Shechem was one of those cities. That this is a place of God's covenant, a place of remembrance, a place where where even as Rehoboam is being crowned as king, that the Spirit of God wanted the people to remember, he's not your real king. At least that's how I interpret it. Anyway, so the people gather at Shechem. Rehoboam's there at Shechem. And Jeroboam hears about it. And so he comes back from Egypt. And he's standing there too. And he's standing there on behalf of all the people. And he calls up to Rehoboam in verse verse 4, chapter 12. Your father put a heavy yoke on us. Now lighten the harsh labor and the heavy yoke he put on us and we will serve you, King Rehoboam. So Rehoboam hears this and he considers it for a moment. He says, give me some time. He's got two sets of advisors. He goes first to his father's advisors, older men, men who have seen what happens when you lay a heavy hand on the people such as Solomon did. And he says to them, hey, what do you think I ought to do? And they say, verse 7, really important verse, if today you will be a servant to these people and serve them and give them a favorable answer, they will always be your servants. In this line is a biblical principle we'll see flesh out later on. This is really, really important. They say that to Rehoboam, and Rehoboam says, eh, "Wrong answer, right? That's not what he wanted to hear." And instead, Rehoboam turns to his second set of advisors. His fraternity brothers, if you will. The guys he grew up with, right? On a level with him. And they say to him, hey, come on. You need to show him who's boss right out of the gate. Let him know your father was hard. You'll be even harder. Let's pause for a moment make sure we're all together. What is Rehoboam's assumption about the power he's been given? Who does Rehoboam think the power he's been given is meant to serve? Himself. (laughs) And his comrades, his his friends, tell him that very thing. And as a result, the people throw their hands up and say, we're out of here. Go back to your tents. Rehoboam's one who, who used his power in a heavy-handed manner. And we know people like this, right? If we're not careful, we are people like this. We see it in politics, where people use the power that has been entrusted to them to, to produce wealth and esteem and reputation instead of serving the people. We see it in the home I shudder at my memory of sitting in my chair with the kids bugging me, and they say, why, 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 why? And my answer was, because I said so. That's right. The exercise of my fatherly power in a heavy-handed way. Certainly in the workplace, you have likely encountered this. Someone who has more power than you that just shoves you around because they can. That's Rehoboam. So if we've got two people, naturally, Rehoboam's the villain. Jeroboam must be the hero, right? Not so fast, if you're a college football fan and liked Lee Corso, right? Not so fast. Jeroboam is just as bad. Look at it. Verses 25 through 29. Specifically in verse 27, let's remember what he did. All the people go back to their tents, their nations, The only ones left in Jerusalem are Judah, and they're not there because they love Rehoboam. They're there because that's their home, and they have nowhere else to go. Jeroboam is now their leader, and he's thinking to himself, how am I going to make sure I maintain this power? Verse 27 specifically, he says, if they go to the temple in Jerusalem to worship, as is commanded to them, it will give them opportunity to be realigned with Rehoboam because of this proximity. I, I can't have that. And so he checks with his advisors, and then comes up with this plan. Did you hear it? He says to Israel, "Hey, hey, 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 hey! These things that God has told you to do—worship in the temple and all of that—that's too hard. That's too. That's too long a journey." You shouldn't have to do that. And he makes two golden calves. I think I've kind of heard this before, haven't you? He makes two golden calves and he puts one in Dan and one in Bethel and says, these are closer, these are easier, this makes more sense. Just go there. And leads the people not only into disobedience, but ultimately into destruction. Here's what I want you to notice, really important. Yeah, there, there's the line. It is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. Here's what I want you to notice. Jeroboam and Rehoboam have the same motivation. The acquisition and maintenance of personal power for their own sake. And yet, though their motivation is the same, their approach to getting that power couldn't be more different. And as we recognize people like Rehoboam in the world who who exert power with a heavy hand, we also ought to recognize others entrusted with power who instead of exerting a heavy hand neglect the responsibility they have to lead and for their own sake just say, "Eh, you know, do whatever you want. I mean, as a contrary to the father who says, because I said so, are the fathers and the mothers who go, yeah, I don't, who am I? I don't really want to be bothered. I want to maintain this power. Or as I was reflecting, I thought about myself. You know, there is, there is a certain power that I have when I, I have a platform I can, I can speak, and sometimes in the exercise of that power, I say something that some of you don't like. Did you know that? (laughs) And in those moments, sometimes someone is courageous enough to come to me and say, hey, I didn't like that. I don't agree. And there is a temptation for me in that moment to say something like, hey, no, 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 you didn't didn't hear me rightly. You didn't really understand. You're okay just as you are. There's a temptation for me to just want to get along or be liked because I like to be liked. Like Jeroboam, right? There is the temptation to say, It's too hard to ask you to do what God actually calls you to do. So we'll make a different way. That would be an exercise of preserving personal power for my own sake. Do you see that? Do you see it in your own lives? There's these twin temptations or opposite poles that these kings carry out. And we need to see them and guard against them. But more than anything, recognizing these two errors and these two kings ought to call our gaze to our one true king, Jesus, who embodies a more perfect way, who rules not with a heavy hand nor with negligence, but with faithfulness and truth. Let me remind you of a scene you likely know about from the New Testament. It's in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10. Jesus is walking with his disciples, and a couple of them pull him aside. James and John was their names. James and John pull him aside, and they say, Hey, Jesus, we have a favor to ask. And he said, Okay, this is interesting. What do you, what do you want? He said, Well, when you come into your kingdom, will you let one of us sit on your right hand and the other on your left hand? Meaning, could we have the places of power in your kingdom? Remember this? Do you remember this scene? Right? I can only imagine Jesus' face. What? You don't know what you're asking for, he says. Well, the other ten hear about this. And they are indignant, the scripture says. Why are they so upset? Because they wanted those seats, right? Right? It wasn't that James or John acted ignobly. It's that, that James and John were quicker. They wanted those seats of power because that's the way of the world. All of us in our fallen nature seek power and then seek to use that power for ourselves. At least that's what Jesus says when he responds to them. Look at these verses Mark chapter 10. Verses 42 through 45, he says, hey, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. But basically, he's saying the whole world that is not Jewish, but actually, I think he could include Jews too, since James and John are Jews, right? The whole world acts this way, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must become your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. And he said this, most important, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Meditate on that last verse for just a minute. Even the Son of Man this messianic phrase that points to the book of Daniel, with lifts up this coming King. This King is not King of a particular nation; he is King of the world, and safe not the world. He is King of the universe. He is the one who has made all that is. All power is invested in him. There is no one who has greater power than the Son of Man, and yet he comes into the world and does not demand that we serve him, but instead gave up his life, hung on the cross to serve us, paid the penalty for our sin that we might be rescued. Having done that, he exerts his power, not over us, but over death. And then establishes another way. Unlike Jeroboam, he doesn't say, so, you're good, don't worry about it. He says, no, come follow me. Take up your cross. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Do you see Jesus, our King, not Rehoboam, the heavy-handed, narcissistic dictator, not Jeroboam, the one who neglects the responsibility of the power entrusted to him, but Jesus, our one King, right and true. That's why we gather. That's why we worship. I had a slightly different message this morning, and then I, I felt like the Spirit say, no, don't move so quick to the, what do you, what do, you do with your power? Just look at Jesus, because that's what worship is all about. You know, I titled the sermon Upside Down Kingdom, because that's what an organizational chart usually looks like in the world, doesn't it? It looks like a pyramid with the CEO or some head at the top, and everyone else is there to serve them. But Jesus came, and he flipped the thing upside down. He said, the most important person is the one at the bottom who gives himself to serve others. And that's why we worship him. That's why we adore him. That's why we sing to That's why we follow him. And as we do, we remember the promise that he made. Draw us to a close with this. We remember the promise he made. Remember Matthew 16, verse 25. For whoever wants to save their life, you want to save your life, you accumulate your wealth, your power, your reputation, all of that, you try to build it up. Jesus says, you are going to lose it. Rehoboam lost it. Jeroboam lost it. Every king we will skip over, because we're moving so fast in this story, lost it. They did evil in the eyes of the Lord. But whoever understands this principle, the principle that the, the advisors were giving to Rehoboam, if you serve them, they will serve you the rest of your life. You won't lose your life. You'll find it. Reformation Sunday, I opened by not demeaning, I was being honest about the the state of the Catholic Church in the Middle Ages. Even faithful Catholics would tell you popes like Pope Leo X was an evil man. Let's end by celebrating some things. You know this guy in the picture here? That's the current Pope. He's a fallible man, let's not make make no mistake about it. He's a fallible man too. But do you notice where he's standing? This picture comes from 2014, as he's getting off a public bus that nobody knew he was about to ride. Of course, he couldn't tell many people in advance, but he rode a public bus to a retreat center that he was going to as he nurtured his own personal faith. I'm I'm grateful, as you know about the history of popes like Pope Leo X., that the church has progressed in such a way that we have somebody who seems to recognize that the power invested in him by God is not meant for him alone or at all. But to serve people, to serve the poor, to serve the church. And so let's, let's celebrate on Reformation Sunday, our God, let's pray for the unity of the church. Let's hold up the doctrines of faith. Let's pray and do that together. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you that you are our king. Unlike every other human being that has come into this world, you embody that office perfectly. That you deal with us not in a heavy-handed manner. You could condemn us for our sin, but you don't. Instead, you die for us. And neither, Lord, did you neglect the responsibility of your office to point to the way that we're told is narrow, it's hard, it's not obvious. Would you help us to follow your word and the guidance of your spirit that we would indeed love you by obeying you. And so glorify and honor you, our King, our Lord Jesus. It's in that name we pray. Amen. We hope you've enjoyed our First Pres Mommy podcast. Learn more about our church at our website, firstpresmommy.org. Have a great week.